Welcome to the Fourth Watch Podcast, a curated conversation with some of the most interesting voices in the media. I'm Steve Krakauer. Today we've got a packed show with Buck Sexton, Cheryl Ackeson, plus my friend JT. This is episode 52. We're bringing back the different format for the Fourth Watch podcast for this episode, featuring a variety of conversations with some of my favorite thinkers in the media. Buck Sexton will be here, Cheryl Ackeson, and my friend JT again for temperature check at the end, something a little fun. Throughout the show will be several topics we'll return to, and that begins now with a look at the depressingly predictable corporate media coverage when it comes to violence, and particularly gun violence. One of the big reasons for the decline in trust in the press in recent years is just how predictable it's become. Turn on the TV, cable news, you go to a website, left or right, you generally get what you think you're going to get, and that's a problem. Couple that with a bias of omission in a lot of instances, what stories don't get covered or what stories get covered a massive amount in comparison to, say, other stories that seem very similar you start to see why people are so distrustful and disdainful of the corporate press. One area of coverage stands out perhaps more than any other, and that's when it comes to instances of violence, gun violence, mass shootings in particular. Now, I'm not an artist by any means, but I recently created this flowchart that I put out on X or Twitter to give an indication of whether there will be significant media coverage of a mass shooting It's sad that it was very easy to put this together. You go down the list. Okay, is there a non-white perpetrator and non-white victims of a mass shooting? Like, for example, we see in Chicago a lot of weekends. Uh, You're going to pretty much get zero national news coverage of that. Is there a non-white, black, Hispanic perpetrator and white victims? You probably are not going to see a massive amount of corporate media coverage unless It can be a story about, say, gun control, which is a big element to how these stories get covered in the first place. Or you go down the the line, you've got a white perpetrator and non-white victims. Oh, you better believe it. The question is just whether the story is going to be about gun control or whether it can be attached to something more like MAGA extremism, you know, right-wing white supremacist violence. Do you have a white perpetrator and mostly white victims? Well got a Trump supporter or a racist who did the shooting? Oh, yeah, for sure. And even if not, you've still got a gun control story there. But as we found out earlier this year, not if the shooter is, say, transgender, like we saw in the horrible school shooting in Nashville. That one just disappeared from the headlines. And it's also one where we learned there was this manifesto. In fact, multiple notebooks, we're told, full of screeds that have been completely suppressed and not a lot of interest for most in the media to make this public anyway. But have a MAGA hat wearing gunman opening fire in New Mexico like happened recently, wounding one, uh, you get coverage. You'll learn the names. Not so much when it comes to, say, the transgender shooter. And speaking of coverage of violent incidents, this isn't even factoring in what happened on January 6th, 2021, and the outsides coverage that that got and continues to get this day. 
Some in the press have made it their entire beat. Their entire beat is covering the riot at the Capitol that day, years and years later. What's behind the decision-making? On one level, I do think some of it stems from an ignorance, a disdain for a fear of guns. There's something cultural even more than political in this bias. If you have no experience with guns, if you have an ignorance about how guns work, suddenly a violent act that involves guns, as most of these obviously mass shootings do or other sorts of gun violence that we see, that's going to get a certain kind of coverage from people that do not understand it. Now, it's a sad reflection on the state of the media when we can predict the outcomes, predict the coverage based on the race of the victims or the race of the perpetrator, what that combination is, and how the narrative can be constructed and serviced and whether it serves a goal. It's cynical, I know. I don't think it's black and white in the media about every issue. I think there's a lot of gray area. But this one in particular is sadly depressingly predictable. Coming up, my conversation with Buck Sexton. He's the co-host of the Clay Travis and Buck Sexton Show. Buck and I also work together at The Blaze, known Buck for a long time. And uh, we get into a lot, both on this particular issue about the gun violence, uh, coverage of that gun violence January 6th, and his time working at CNN, and my time working at CNN. Here's Buck. Thanks for doing this. Um, I wanted to start with uh, this topic of crime, uh, violence, particularly gun violence. You know, I've kind of laid out just how hypocritical but very predictable a lot of the uh, the corporate media coverage is when it comes to these stories. You look at, you know, non-white perpetrator, non-white victim, like we see in Chicago all the time, zero national news coverage, you know, white perpetrator, if we can make it about MAGA extremism or about gun control, it gets so much more coverage, particularly if it's certainly non-white victims. So what what do you make of it? And as you look at this issue, you know, what is it about these that seems like it becomes the most predictable when it comes to the, the what generally gets coverage in the media? Well, many of the people in the media who speak the loudest about uh, the need to address uh, gun violence are the most partisan and, and the most immune to the facts as they're presented as to what's really going on with gun violence across the country uh, and and what could work as a means of trying to bring down those numbers dramatically. We know it is possible. It has happened in places. I grew up in New York City. In New York City, there were, now this is all homicides, but most homicides are committed with with handguns. Um, There were about 2,200 murders in 1990, and that got down by the end of the Bloomberg administration uh, to in the 300s. Um, so that's a massive drop off of violence uh, in America's biggest city. We know this is possible. Uh, we also know it's possible to reverse that trend. And that's what the Soros uh, backed prosecutors have done in so many American cities. And this was really a plan. This was a program that they had for reasons of uh, social justice. The decision was made to influence district attorneys' races to try to get people in there, and this is with money from usually Soros-funded organizations, to make sure that uh, criminals would be given lighter sentences and also that these activist groups would push for you know no cash bail. And it just just to take a soft on crime approach across across the board. 
On the gun violence issue specifically, though, uh, you'll notice that the, the institutions that will push for this stuff, they often focus on things like the AR-15. They'll say we need an assault rifle right. ban. The truth is that over 90 percent, I think it's over 95 percent of homicides involving farm involve a handgun. A lot of that violence is happening in uh, high crime neighborhoods of major cities. Disproportionately, both the perpetrators of that crime and the uh, the victims of those crimes are young minority males. And so these city district attorneys end up not enforcing gun laws. Right. Because they don't want to lock up the people that have an illegal handgun in Philadelphia or have an illegal handgun in, you know, name a name a city, name a, um, a jurisdiction right now. And so they're not serious even about the gun laws that are on the books. They just want to use it as an emotional, uh, really an emotional tool to attack the Second Amendment. Yeah, I, I definitely emotion over over fact and and rational reporting there. How much of it do you think, you know, as someone who I grew up in the East Coast and you grew up on the East Coast, uh, so much of our media these days is is largely geographically based in New York and D.C. A lot of the people that are there don't spend a lot of time in communities outside of that. I know you're now outside of it. I'm now outside of it. But how much of it is just is just geography and culture? You know, people that are not don't grow up around gun culture or, or even know how to fire a gun or ever pick up a gun have this this inherent fear of it and not understanding about it. Well, I think that there's a lot of, of people that are, are programmed um, by the media. Um, I mean, I can even think back to like early episodes of uh, the West Wing, which was, you know, Democrats stealth presidency during the Bush administration, like yeah. the make believe fantasy land presidency. Um, that, long for the days of a, of, of a, of yeah. a Jed Bartlett presidency these days. But yeah, yeah. Uh, Jed Bartlett would be like a right winger these days. Right. But anyway, um, the but all the focus on like a handgun bill or like the licensing or the waiting period. And, you know, we've gone through these phases where we've done all these things. People, the whole debate is skewed because they say we need common sense gun laws. And I would argue we have a ton of gun laws already. I and mean, we have far too many gun laws in a lot of places. Um, and some of them are flagrantly unconstitutional. The Supreme Court's actually found that, D.C. v. Heller most famously, but in other instances as well. There are a lot of laws that you have to obey to both purchase uh, and, and you know, own and, and, and carry a firearm. So it's not like the, this is the Wild West. And, and by the way, there were gun laws in the Wild West, too, depending on where you were. But it's not like this is just something where people are able to do whatever they want um, in terms of buying and, and owning firearms. So I think that's a part of it. I also think that it's a it's become a convenient cultural signifier for if you are a Second Amendment proponent, if you're somebody who believes in the right to bear arms, the chance that you are also a Republican, that you also maybe voted for Donald Trump, that you're pro-life, um, you know, you go down the list is very high. I mean, there's some variation in, in those different uh, those different policies and categories. But it's a very high proportion of people who are going to be pro Second Amendment and then overwhelmingly conservative in their politics. So that's how it just becomes an issue of uh, for a lot of the left, I think, not just of, oh, we want to address you know, gun violence. But really, it's we want to stick a thumb in the eye of our political opponents. And we know this pisses them off. So let's try to you know create a 10 round limitation in a magazine and they've done this in a number of states i think california new york connecticut these these are idiotic decisions but it doesn't stop any gun violence it just annoys the people who own guns and believe in the second amendment and and i think for a lot of democrats that's that's a sufficient cause 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it kind of, it, the, Another side of this is, is I think, like uh, from a media perspective, the I don't want to say bi- there's a bias of omission, but also it, you're, there's a real disincentive to cover these stories in certain ways that might get you pushback on social media. You know, if if you know people on X criticize you for doing it, and and it brings up the the Nashville school shooting, which was you know done by a, a transgender perpetrator. Uh, the manifesto, which we have learned, has we believe has some sort of very radical uh, trans ideology in it, but we don't know. Well, we don't know because they won't, won't, right. They won't right, release has it. not been released. And that story has just completely disappeared of all the, the, the recent kind of gun violence stories that we've saw, you know, mass shootings, school shootings gone completely. You know, I think that's also very significant um, that that story, for example. Yeah. I mean, I, the double standard part of it, obviously, if this was a right wing, you know, MAGA hat wearing shooter or something, it would have been, first of all, the, the story would have lasted much longer, would have had much more for much more uh, focused coverage. Um, but but there's something else going on here, which is the uh, the Democrat media, the Democrat line. And I do believe we just have a partisan media now. I don't I mean, I have for a long time. So I just refer to them as the Democrat media. I want to ask you about that. Uh, I don't I don't like them. What, what's up? I want to ask you more about that later. Also. Sure, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't like this. I don't like the term mainstream media because like, well, first of all, why? And I, I credit Michael Malice with that. He asked me that once. He's like, why do you call them that? Because that was, you know, conservatives, the movement, we'd say the MSM. And it's like, yeah, why just say they're mainstream? Like, I think there's plenty of very mainstream stuff that's on the right. Anyway, um, th- there is a there is a desire uh, to create the belief that the primary threat of violence in this country of all kinds comes from right-wing white males. Um, the left is focused on that as a narrative. And so anything that doesn't feed into that is suppressed. Anything that does feed into that is elevated, exaggerated, focused on. Um, and so there's there's something more at work here than just about guns or about violence. It's your side. They like to believe your side, the right, is evil. There's an evil, there's a violence, there's something, which honestly also goes to why they're always talking about like the January 6th insurrection, overthrow the government and all the rest of it. It's not that we disagree on policy, but we're all Americans. It's there's something on our side that is, um, there's like a a, a darkness in the heart of the right that they're trying to, and then I, and of course I sit here and say, I think if there's a darkness in the heart of any side, it's the left, but this is the nature of our politics today. Well, right. And it certainly doesn't doesn't lend itself to take each individual story and each individual incident and and address it or cover it on its merits. You know, no, it, there's none of that at all. And and that is a perfect segue to January 6th. You know, we see riots during uh, the 2020 summer uh, of George Floyd or post George Floyd um, covered a certain way. And then we see January 6th, uh, uh, you know, six months later, essentially covered a completely different way and being covered years and years later, uh, people have made it their entire media beat to cover January 6th these days. And I I think you kind of get at this, but, but what do you think it says about a media that, that has no qualms about making this one particular incident, not a good incident. I was, you know, I, I don't think I have to say that, not, not cheering. Yeah, it was on. bad. I've I yeah. said that the day of, I've said that every day since. I mean, it, right. uh, it was bad in every sense. It was bad because of, it was illegal and it was bad because it helped the left and it was bad because it allowed the unleashing of the uh, counterterrorism state, if you will, on like the, the sort of right-wing America in general. Uh, it, it was bad, it's no question, but it wasn't an overthrow of the United States government. It wasn't a violent coup to topple, uh, you know, the, the regime. That's just crazy. Right. Right. But 
what does it tell us? I guess, you know, especially now, I mean, we're talking, it's the end of 2023. I, I the amount of coverage of January 6th, like if I Google January 6th today, it's being new stories are being written about it in, in mainstream. And I would say mainstream, you would say Democrat media outlets. It's, it is incessant. It is never ending. There's books being written about it still. It's being continued to be, you know, trying to make it a thing, trying to make it so that it has 9-11 ramifications. What do you think is at the core of that from a media perspective? Oh, it's it's the most useful um, political tool and the most useful, uh, you know, narrative device that they have for the uh, the continued holding of and and wielding of power. Um, and and seeking more uh, of it going forward. I, I think, you know, I, I've been saying all along, and now everyone who's been doubting me, I've been saying, look, it's going to be Joe Biden. I mean, he could have a stroke and then Kamala takes over, but then it's basically the Biden-Kamala ticket that people are voting for. And, and no one really thinks Joe Biden's running the country anyway. It's just about name recognition and, and the system in place. All these all these thoughts and ideas that I've been you know, fielding for like a year now about how, oh, it's, it's going to be, you know, someone else. Um, no, uh, you have an incumbent president. You're, it's not going to be somebody else. And I think people are starting to see it, you know, for what it is now. Uh, sorry, I just get a little fired up at that because I've just I've gotten like thousands of emails. From people, why do you think it's going to be Biden? That's crazy. I'm like, it's not crazy. OK, yeah. I mean, I'm not saying I'm 100 percent sure, but I'm 95 percent sure now. Uh, yeah. But but the, one of the reasons and this is what ties into January 6th is that that's going to be the whole anti-Trump, uh, the whole anti-Trump campaign. And and people can say, oh, we've seen so much of that and whatever. Yeah, but if you're a kind of middle of the road, you know, union worker in you know in uh, you know central western Pennsylvania, if you're a college educated, uh, you know, female, which is a very hard demographic for Trump, a college educated female living in Arizona who's voted for both parties, you know, you live in the suburbs, you live in Scottsdale or something like. What do you think about all the January 6th footage? And it'd be one thing if it wasn't going to be the guy, you know, who's most associated with it running. But, you know, like if, if we had um, anyone else, you know, if Nikki Haley was the candidate, you run January 6th footage, no one no one really cares. Right. It's going to be Donald Trump. They're going to run endless January 6th footage. I think it's unfair in a sense. I mean, nothing's really unfair in politics these days, but you know what I mean? I think they're going to... Um, you know, make it seem like Trump was, um, you know, much more directing it and everything else than he did. Uh, but I think it will be effective because it was effective in 2022 in key races. And I don't know that the Republican or the conservative base has really accepted that reality yet or sees that reality for what it is. Yeah. We wanted to watch. All right. I want to spend a little bit of time at the end here on your career, um, particularly your time at CNN, because you were at CNN 2015 and 2016, which I think are like it's mm -hmm. the money years. Like you got to see the turn, you know, from oh, yeah. whatever, you know, I was there 2010 to 2013. I would say I was there when it was a news organization, um, had its flaws, wasn't always doing perfect news. But I think at the beginning of 2015, I think you started January 2015, it probably was an extremely different place than when you left in December of 2016. And so I mean, I've spoken about this with a lot of friends of mine because they're like, how could you, you know, I mean, I sit with Clay Travis now yeah. on the, on the show that was put in this lot for Rush Limbaugh. I mean, I, I am, I am right wing. I mean, that is reality. Um, they, but they say, how could you have ever worked at CNN? And I say, well, when they brought me in, it was mostly to do counterterrorism analysis because of my CIA background. And they were very, um, 
you know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm a little, there were a few times where things got a little bit, uh, a little bit tense on set where somebody was kind of just like, well, like the terrorism wouldn't happen if like the Europeans treated their minorities better like that. And, and I would get a little you know, fired up about that. I'd be like, that's, that's crazy. But they knew that I knew my stuff and I had legitimate credentials and background. And so there was a degree of respect that I was afforded both by the producers, the anchors, you know, just by the institution. And then Trump became, you know, the front runner in the Republican primary. And they started needing more conservative voices from within their ranks to go on air. And I'm telling you, not only did I see CNN transform into really a, a uh, weaponized propaganda arm of the DNC against Trump, I also personally felt very um, uh, unwelcome suddenly. And and all of a sudden, it wasn't like, here's a guy, okay, he's conservative, but he knows a lot of stuff about some things that are worthwhile. He can do high-level analysis for us. He's, you know, he's respectful, even when he disagrees. It was like, you like Trump, you scumbag? I mean, that was the approach right. all of a sudden on these shows, whether it was, you know, Don Lemon's show or Aaron Burnett's show or, you know, whatever, you know, the morning show, whatever the shows. I don't remember all the shows over there. Um, so it was a weird thing to witness. And I was very aware of it. And you could tell also that it was very personal for Jeff Zucker, that he decided that CNN was his battleship to go after Trump and MAGA world. And if you weren't, you know, pointing, pointing those 12 inch guns in the right direction, Zucker had no time for you. Right. Well, you talk about being personal for Jeff Zucker because he was, you know, he helped make Trump at NBC before that. I mean, it was, you know, between the celebrity apprentice and the, you know, being Jeff running the entertainment unit there. Uh, it is fascinating. And it's it's so interesting. You, you talk about that. I thought about this a lot. Like, let's say there was like some chef uh, who happened to vote Republican publicly and he was doing today's show cooking segments before. Like you would have uh, lots of them who vote, vote Democrat and who's talking about Democrat. But then they would try to get out there and do that and not talk about politics, but just that's known about them. I mean, that could never fly. I mean, maybe it couldn't have flown before, but certainly not in a post-Trump world. And and I guess, yeah, I mean, maybe you you were there to witness that that real shift that that's been, you know, continued to this day. Yeah, the place dramatically changed during my uh, tenure there. And and it was a short it was it was fast, too. I wasn't there very long. I mean, to the point where, Steve, I'll tell you, they actually um, wanted to extend my contract to be a contributor in 2016. I had no TV job. And, uh, you know, things were, it wasn't like I was getting offers from all over the place. I said, no, I turned down a job, I paid, which for anybody who doesn't work in TV to turn down a paid job in TV without anything to replace it is, you know, early in your career is, uh, is pretty unusual, but I not, I, I, I came to the point where I felt like it was, um, it's not just that I was, it was not like I was being disrespected, but it was disrespectful to the work that I've done and the ideas that I could share to show up in a place that was so skewed and so and just so like maniacal and it's anti-Trumpism. Yeah, like hostile work environment there for you. Um, obviously, you know, Clay Travis and Buck Sexton show now. Um, but before that, you were at, at The Hill and uh, I, I found a column you wrote in 2018 called uh, Can CNN Be Trusted? 
Uh, the answer is basically no. Um, they certainly couldn't end. Do you think it's recoverable? I mean, as someone who's seen it from from both ends of it, from the inside, uh, I guess like I have on some level. But you know, you were you were there during the Trump years as it as it happened. Do you think that it's it's possible for the right combination of people to get in there and turn it back to even what it was before, which was biased but not propaganda? I think that's a best case scenario. I think it will be very hard, and I think in large part it's hard not just because to get that right is a big challenge because it's never static, right? You know, the sort of the politics and the and the feel of the movements changes over time. But beyond that, um, I think the audience has changed. Yeah. I think that audiences for news commentary now, they want their team. They want what they want to hear and they want their side to win. They don't want to see, they don't even want to see robust debate. They want to see, you know, people getting, you know, clobbered if they're on the other side. And, and they want the affirmation of their uh, beliefs, notions, biases, et cetera. There is no interest, I think, in the general marketplace right now, at least of cable news for, you know, hey, here's just the news, guys. I, I don't think that because the audience doesn't want it. It's not even just like it's hard to do, which is also true, um, which is why CNN, I think, continues to, to flounder. Although I, I do think it'll turn back into the anti-Trump like Death Star here pretty soon. I, I just feel like that's the only way it can go. So maybe maybe they're gonna have to bring back Zucker and like all of his guys and all of his gals and just go for it. Something to look forward to in 2024, Buck. Uh, thanks so much for doing it. Hey, Steve, crack. Good to see you, my friend. Thanks for making the time for me. Thanks to Buck Sexton. We're going to get to Cheryl Atkinson next. But before we do, I want to tell you that the full Fourth Watch podcast is available exclusively to paid subscribers on Substack. Normally, this one is available in full to everyone. Fourth Watch is on Substack. Paid subscribers get a whole bunch of extra content, original deep dive columns called Rabbit Hole, full podcast each episode. Check it out for just five bucks a month. Fourthwatch.media. Up now, Cheryl Atkinson, host of Full Measure News. Cheryl was a longtime correspondent at legacy media outlets like CBS News. She then went on to write some incredible books, including one that was really way before its time. It was published in 2014 called Stonewalled, My Fight for Truth Against the Forces of Obstruction, Intimidation, and Harassment in Obama's Washington. I think it really told us where we were heading in the industry, uh, and I was uh, really Excited to talk to Cheryl about uh, a variety of issues. Here's Cheryl Ackerson. Thanks for doing this. Um, uh, you know, talking a little bit this episode about what I've described as really the frustrating, kind of depressing predictability of the corporate media's coverage of topics like crime or violence, things related to guns, especially gun violence. And it's a topic that you have covered, I think, really well on Full Measure uh, with Cheryl Atkinson, which I think is a, is really just a great, you know, curious, objective news program that I think people really should check out. Um, you've had issues, uh, you know, episodes re related to the gun control um, story in California, uh, Chicago violence, which I think is just a perfect example of this that never seems to get much coverage from the media. You look at perpetrator, victim, and then all of a sudden that's a story, that's a mass shooting that doesn't seem to get the kind of coverage that the other mass shootings do. So as you look at this issue and, and so, as someone who's been in the media uh, for, for a while, what sticks out to you? And do you think that this has gotten worse or more pervasive as, or has this always been this way? Well, we've always He's been subjected to our own biases by the selection of stories, the people we choose to interview, 
you know, all of that. And I've really put a lot of thought in this retrospectively as a journalist over the years of how I may have unintentionally biased my stories in a way that's unfair, unwarranted. I mean, we have to choose. We're gatekeepers and make decisions on what stories we pay attention to. But I think we have, over time, let intentional and unintentional bias seep into our coverage. But it's a whole new ballgame since the Internet, and particularly in the last few years, since Trump entered the stage when there were such desperate efforts to control the narrative that the media and social media companies quit pretending they weren't doing it. You know, so, so all along, perhaps, there were elements of that. But when it became audacious, so audacious that they said, this is what we're doing and we think we should do it, control your information and censor and tell you what to think, it's like all, you know, no holds barred with the New York Times leading the way and then other media thinking because the New York Times admitted it and was doing it that that's the thing to do. And then I'm writing about this in my upcoming book as well. There has been a near total takeover of most forms of information that stand to influence us by a core group of influencers on behalf of corporate and political interests worldwide. So there are global foundations funding journalism groups, medical groups, you name it, pretty much anything that can be influenced. And it's, it's the same core of overlapping people taking over media literacy efforts, calling themselves fact checkers, but in order to shape the narrative. So this is in play with a gun control story. This is in play with virtually any information or story that you can point to today. Yeah, I know that the, the subject of your fourth book is, is really kind of related to COVID and the medical industrial complex, if you will, right? I know this is what's coming out next year. Yeah, in April, um, they're calling it, HarperCollins is calling it, follow the science with a dollar sign for the S in science. And I think what the editors think makes this book so compelling is there are a lot of discussions about the takeover of our information, particularly our medical and scientific information. But this is, they said, the best view they've seen where it draws a clear line. It doesn't just allege that there are these interests working in the background. It provides such specific and documented examples. It's pretty shocking. That's great. Uh, I'm looking forward to that. No, I, I think it's such a, um, it's interesting, you know, obviously a lot of people think of like the Trump era as the beginning of this. And in a lot of ways it was, um, or maybe the continuation of something, but then that sort of censorship industry that was built out of the Trump uh, uh, era, you know, maybe even that came after it with COVID and, and other topics uh, is just is just so damaging to to the credibility of the press and and to, you know, getting the truth out there. You know, it's 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 interesting. I, I, I want to jump back to the to the gun story in a second. But um, I recently uh, the New York Times wrote up my book uh, uncovered from uh, over the weekend recently. And um, uh, put it with a few different different books, and they were kind of in a, in a negative way, saying, "Oh, he like longs for this pretend objectivity of the 1950s and 1960s." And I was like, "Not really." Like I I, I was at CNN in 2012 and 2013. Like there were problems with CNN when I was there, but I would love to go back to the 2012 2013 CNN or or corporate media. Um, it's gone so far down so fast, and I wonder. Obviously, you you've you know you you were. You were at uh, at CBS up until uh, 2013 or 2014, and I, I, I guess I'm curious now if you can start to to see like even when you were there and you and you wrote about your time there and and some of the the efforts to suppress some of the information that you were looking to get out there, um, if you saw that switch, you know, change 
from even when you were there versus what came a year or two later? Absolutely. I think I was just on the leading edge as one of their few investigative reporters, maybe the only one at the time I left, because the types of stories I tended to report on were the ones that were going to be the first ones that these interests tried to manipulate and change and slant. So I, I probably got a taste of it before everybody else. But yes, it later came to be the things I observed early on and even 15 or 20 years before that, less often at CBS, um, it came to be so commonplace and accepted now, which is what's scary. I think journalists, young journalists today, many of them are being, being taught this is the way it is, this is good. They don't even think it's strange. And by the way, I don't know if you know, I was at CNN in 1990 to 93, and I'm fond of saying back when it was a news organization. Because I will tell you, as flawed as the media is, we're only human, the 90 to 93 CNN was about as unbiased as I can think anything could get. And no one ever had the discussion with us. It was my impression. It, it was just the way it was. We didn't want our information to be influenced or interfered with by our own personal opinions. And, you know, that was sort of a tenet that I understood when I went to anchor at CNN. And I felt like it was pretty much shared by the other anchors. So I don't even recognize that news organization today. I don't think it is a news organization. Right. Now, certainly those tenants are gone. Yeah. Like I, I would say that, you know, when I was there 2012, 2013, you know, when I was there 2010 to 2013, I, they, they wanted to be objective. That was the goal. Uh, they didn't always, you know, live up to that for sure. But that was the, that was the mission. Uh, that's no longer the mission, certainly not during the Trump years. I mean, it was explicit that that was no longer the mission. That is a huge change there. Um, and I wonder how much of it you put on the Obama years uh, as something that that may have changed. And I know your first book, uh, Stonewalled, One Reporter's Fight for Truth Against the Forces of Obstruction, Intimidation, and Harassment in Obama's Washington, really shone a light on this in a way that, uh, again, I think you were early on it, but but I don't think people fully grasped just how how antagonistic that administration was towards journalists and the and the job of journalism. Uh, how much do you think that that played a role in in what was to come? Well, that was timing, I, and I feel like it's timing more than anything. As the internet came to be, initially it was not viewed immediately, perhaps by so many people, as a tool that could be controlled and control people. Right. Initially, we were bought we bought into the internet and social media and Twitter and so on as the thing that would help us access all information and make everybody, give everybody equal access to the information we want. And then there was a bait and switch because these corporate and political forces understood if they placed people there and worked to influence in certain ways, they've turned it into the opposite of accessing open information. And that was, you know, Twitter's not all that old. It didn't start in 2000, you know, with the internet. All these things were coming into play around the Obama years. And I will say that I don't know President Obama. Um, I mean, I've met him, but I, I don't know him. I don't know what's in his mind. I don't blame this on Obama. I think there are key influencers in government that persist today who were in government at that time and are connected with these corporate and political interests globally. Some of these same people go and influence elections and act as election advocates in the United Kingdom. I'm noticing trends when I visit Russia for a journalism sem seminar or when I'm in Europe, the same things are happening everywhere. There are people pulling strings on a global basis for controlling our information in the internet. So I think it took place in the Obama years because that was just as these interests learned how to control our information timing-wise when it happened. And one of the first times I noticed it, I was assigned to cover the BP oil spill. Hmm. And that was under Obama, not President Obama's 
fault, but I think he was pretty new in office. And it went from Democrats, who were my initial sources, helped me at CBS. I aired the first video, that underwater video of the oil seeping, and I exposed that it was far more than they said it was. You know, it was worse. I exposed the fact that they had video, which they had not fessed up to until I started covering the story. And at first, Democrats in Congress were helping me with that story. And then I noticed this sudden cutoff. I guess they were told not to make a big deal out of it, even though you'd think normally Democrats like going after the oil companies when necessary. They suddenly wouldn't talk about this. I think the Democrats who helped me with that story got spanked by the Obama administration because they felt it made them look bad. And that was like the first time I thought, something really strange is going on. The news isn't happening organically. It's being controlled. The media is responding to it in a strange way because they like Obama. They want to do what President Obama and his administration want. That's when I first noticed it with the Obama administration and the coverage of the BP oil spill. Well, I had noticed some fishy stuff, of course, with the pharmaceutical industry, whole nother ball of wax. But that was just BP oil spill was a general news story of international interest that shocked me to the extent to which it was manipulated, and then the coverage changed as soon as these influencers wanted that story and narrative to change. Right. Well, I would say the pharma one probably has some some clear parallels that you'll be exploring in the uh, in the next book as well. Um, yeah. You know, another one you bring up this idea that now there's there's obviously social media where there's so many more options to get your point of view out there, whether you're an independent journalist or or a legacy media uh, journalist or or company, um, and there's just there are actually more uh, media outlets out there. You know, the business may not be great, uh, but there's so many different different outlets, and yet we still see this this like general sameness, this blandness when it comes. To, I you know I, I talk about it in issues like when it comes to gun violence or in in issues of of you know crime just in general. Uh, but but we're not getting that that more journalism outlets, more voices and more perspectives and, and different ways of covering it. We're, we're, it's almost going the opposite direction. And I, I wonder if, it, if it's just this, this fear of going against the tide, the going against the consensus that's causing that or what you think might be behind that. Well, I would just say that the fact that there is a sameness that exists at all is itself evidence of an orchestrated narrative because yeah. news naturally should be on such a diverse group of topics with so many diverse takes on it that the fact that you can turn from channel to channel or look on social media and see so many of the same views, that's information of itself that you should take and say to yourself, someone's manipulating the narrative. Naturally, organically, there are thousands of news organizations and hundreds or thousands of news stories in a given day. So the fact that everybody's coming up with similar themes is not you know, by accident. Right. And then there are many more places, like you say, that you could go to find out more. But as we know, the government and and those who are trying to control the narrative have successfully figured out ways to amplify the voices they want and to make sure the voices they don't want heard have a much harder time being discovered. Yeah. I do believe that we're in a paradigm shift, as they like to say, with people figuring out what the new form of communications will be where they are more independent and outside of this control. And I think we'll have something, I hope, in the next decade that looks totally different than the way we get our information today, but it will be a better model. Yeah, no, I, I think so too. I am actually kind of hopeful in that way. Well, what, one of the stories though, that that certainly fits this idea of the general sameness in, in type of coverage uh, when it comes to the corporate media 
is, I would say, a version of a crime story um, that for some reason is being covered extremely differently than others, and that's January 6th and the riot at the Capitol. I know you, at full measure, have covered this covered this well in, in several diff- different ways. Um, it's a story that, honestly, I, I'm, I'm still fascinated by. What is it about that that has spun such... Uh, almost like a bloodlust for for by by the media to to go after these these individuals who in many instances were not violent that day but did you know commit some version of crimes by trespassing or something what is it about that story that you think has persisted in this way in a very clear direction uh for what what you've seen well i think that's a reflection of the control of the media that we discuss if the media were an neutral, non-biased observer of the news, you wouldn't see the stories all look the same. But we have to understand that media outlets are largely now controlled by not just outside the news organization who influences them, but the people they've hired who work inside the news organization. These are not journalists, at least in the sense that you and I think of journalists as seeking facts or looking for underreported and uncovered information. They're seeking to put forth a particular narrative or view toward a certain interests for political or corporate purposes. So they're accomplishing their goal when they slant their coverage and when they put out the same story. And that's why I think you see what you see. Um, What I try to do is always look at the underreported version or the other side of the story that people aren't reporting. That's so, it's such a need, there's such a need for that today because of the sameness of the reporting. So I'm looking at, regardless of what you think about the January 6th incident, there surely are questions that have not been fully explored about were the were key instigators working for government or police agencies? And if so, that's not allowed. I mean, they can certainly observe and they should be in the crowd working it, but toward, toward the end of preventing violence and preventing escalation, not to escalate it and to lead the people through so that they commit crimes they might not otherwise have committed. So these are questions that a neutral, non-biased media would have explored deeply by now. And it's, it's being done to some degree by organizations that people may not see as much of, but not by the big news groups. Right. No, I, I think we need I think we need more of it for sure. Um, one of the biases that, that we talk about, and it actually was the subject of uh, Bernie Goldberg's book, um, which uh, was was after his time at, at CBS and in a real seminal book about media bias, um, but really was was mainly about political bias. And, and sure, I think that you could probably make the argument that there is political bias that exists um, in media that's based in in New York and D.C., like like most of them are, like all the Acela media. Um, but as you think about your time in newsrooms from CNN to CBS and, and, and elsewhere, how much of it do you think is the, the sameness of whether it comes to you know, having shot a gun before or religion or, or other sort of more cultural things and, and how that plays into, into whether there's real diversity in, in a newsroom these days? Yeah, I think that people make the mistake of thinking of diversity as being a race-based only form of diversity. When, in fact, even if you get people of different skin colors, but that think very much alike or cover the stories the same way, you haven't really found necessarily found diversity in your news coverage. And I do think having worked in New York newsroom at CBS and Washington newsroom, um, there is there is an overwhelming staffing in newsrooms of a certain type of person, partly based on who manages to make it that far, partly based on who chooses to go into journalism as a career, or a lot of these people, by the way, I don't know if you learned this along the way, 
They didn't train in journalism. Right. The people who worked for political campaigns or somehow stumbled into someone who knew somebody and they found their way into a newsroom and they may have never learned the things that I learned at J School at University of Florida back in the day about just fair reporting. They think their view is to sort of share the right way of thinking about something or share the way they think about something, which is almost the antithesis of what I think, you know, the news yeah. is often supposed to be about. Yeah. Now, all right. Last thing I, I want to ask you, because you mentioned social media a couple of times. I do think that certainly plays a, plays a real role here. And we live in a culture now where you look at who are the most famous, you know, uh, political figures. You know, there are people like AOC, you know, or Lauren Boebert or Matt Gates on the, on the Republican side that have these giant social media followings and almost feed into it. And so uh, how much of that do you think plays a role, whether it's for journalists or even the people that they cover, um, that a social media presence or what it feels like on a platform like Twitter or X or, or others is becomes the reality of what of what people kind of put out there? Well, I'm not sure, but I would just say social media in general is granted an outsized piece of influence over how decisions are made. And I noticed that sort of at the start, it was the media started to act like it was sort of a cool, miraculous thing to see our stories circulated on Twitter when maybe not really all that many people saw it comparatively, but it was just like, wow, you know, comparatively to other ways your right. story might be seen on TV, for example. But they started catering to the social media, responding to the social media. And I like to tell the story of a friend of mine at NBC who reported some story, and I forget what it was, wasn't particularly, I don't think it was controversial at all, but someone decided to make a controversy out of it. There was some reason that some interest wanted it to be controversial. And he said, Cheryl, I got an airplane on the East Coast, and by the time I landed in California, somebody had ginned up a social media storm on Twitter about the story. He said, I had no idea because I was on an airplane. But when I landed, he said, this is how seriously NBC takes social media. He said, the, I think the president of the news division was on the phone and a top lawyer from NBC. And they all had a conference call. And he said, they are responding to this crap without understanding that that makes it easier for these interests to manipulate us because they know these interests with their sophisticated ways that they control what you see on social media. Hey, I just have to make a stink here or there with a few bots in my crisis management firm and my fake accounts, and NBC will respond to this. So we play into it when, in fact, I meet people every day that don't use Twitter, that have no idea how to use Instagram, you know, that I, I'm sure most people in the world are not on these social media platforms regularly. Right. Oh yeah. No, definitely. It's it's so it's so funny. Like I've I've been, you know, I I've been the this the focus of let's say a a major shitstorm happening on uh, on Twitter. And it's like I've, the advice I've gotten from people. It's like you know maybe you're the main character on Twitter that day, but just know that tomorrow you won't be, and it'll all move on to someone else. And it's yeah. like it never happened. You know, it's it feels like a lot in the moment, but it really is is like essentially nothing. Um, uh, well, Cheryl, you're doing great reporting and uh, and really love following you. And thanks so much for doing this. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much to Cheryl. Okay, we close things out with some fun, uh, bringing back my friend JT from here in Dallas for the latest temperature check on guns, talking a lot about guns, but also what's going on uh, about uh, some crazy people in Congress and the Senate and, uh, and a reality show. Um, here's JT. All right, JT, welcome back for temperature check here. Uh, thanks for doing this again. 
I want to start because we I, I talked to some other people in this episode about about guns and coverage of guns, but I, I wanted to just ask you just off the bat about kind of uh, I don't know gun culture. I guess you know I'm a I'm a former Yankee. You know I'm kind of like I'm an expat here in Texas now. I know you grew up around here. Um, it, it, very different for people on the East Coast. I mean I I literally did not you know fire a gun until I literally moved to to Texas, uh, which just was not part of the culture there. Um, so tell me about kind of your upbringing, how guns are part of, you know, we're part of your life, are part of your life now, and, and how it might differentiate from people on, on the coasts. When I was growing up, we were taught to respect guns, that it was definitely a conversation we had as soon as I could remember having the conversation. Um, I have a gun in my car. I have a gun in my house. I have a gun at my office. Um, they're locked with a biometric safe. Uh, I respect guns and I take them very serious. So it's not something where I would ever, you know, show off a gun or anything like that. I think it's just, I mean, <laughs> I was born and raised in Texas. So I think it's kind of just it's just one of those things is like learning to ride a bike. I mean, we, we still go to the gun ranges from time to time to make sure we're up on up to snuff on shooting and everything like that. So, yeah, I mean, that is, does that answer your question? Because I think like, so, yeah, no, that, that's what's so, what's interesting is like, you're, you know, you're like, it's like riding a bike in the sense of like, you grow up, you learn how to use it. You're, you're proficient and you're comfortable with it. And that's why you have it and feel comfortable having it. Right. It's like, it's a totally different philosophy than people who have never picked up a gun. Oh, for sure. I mean, everyone in my family has a gun that I know of. So uh, for you to say that y'all didn't really have that culture, it's just, it's kind of a shocker to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. No, totally different. And I would say most, most of the country is, is like you and not, and not like me in that sense. Uh, you know, not me. It's, it's a pretty isolated and to the, uh, to the coasts there, especially like a New York, New Jersey type thing. But, um, interesting. All right. Well, let's get your temperature on a couple of things. I want to start with, um, in DC right now, and, and you look at all the polls, like the, the trust and respect of government leaders is at all time lows. It doesn't matter whether Republican, Democrat, like it's just kind of across the board. Um, and, and I wonder why that is right now, as we're talking, there's no speaker of the house. Doesn't seem like there's going to be a speaker of the house soon. And the guy who, um, so a couple of these house members just want to ask you about, um, the guy who kind of orchestrated this last one pushed Kevin McCarthy out is Matt Gates regular on all of the cable news, you know, the Foxes and the Newsmax and wherever else. Um, <laughs> after he did this, after he kind of led this revolt, uh, another House member, this uh, Representative um, Mullen, said that uh, that Gates is someone who was showing videos on the House floor of all the girls that he had slept with. And this is a quote, he would brag about how he would crush ED medicine, uh, erectile dysfunction medicine, and chase it with energy drinks so he could go all night. This is a current sitting congressman there. Uh, let me make of that. No one said that people in leadership positions are any different than in, any of us. Um, I would <laughs> cringe if I heard an employee talking that way. Or even, you know, not not even an employee, someone that I work with or for or whatever. Um, 
it's uh yeah it's it's cringy but and and it's inappropriate and and what all those things uh but you know it's there's there's trash everywhere you know <laughs> so yes. just because they're in a leadership position doesn't mean that they're not trash just because they're not okay you know i think i think that was pretty cut and dry this one maybe is a little bit more nuanced okay lauren bobert of Colorado, another uh, GOP congresswoman, uh, was recently on a date uh, with her uh, her new date. She's recently divorced. Um, she she and her date went to a, a musical in Colorado. Uh, Beetlejuice was the musical. I actually didn't know Beetlejuice was a musical these days, but apparently it's a musical. And uh, and she was vaping inside. Um, got kicked out for vaping. And then when they released the security camera footage, we saw not only was she vaping, which she denied that she was doing. She's like, oh no, it's the smoke machine in the Beetlejuice show. No, no, she was vaping. But also her uh, her and her date were were uh, fondling each other. Uh, he was sort of filling up her her boob there and she was kind of going down, down below. Uh, all, I guess, over the clothes, I would say. Um, what do we think of this for our, our our Congress people? Is this is this uh, is this appropriate? I mean, it's it's a little bit a little bit more nuanced. It's interesting. I was just talking about this at lunch yesterday. Not this particular thing. Okay. But I, one of my one of my soapboxes lately is we've got to get rid of some of these boomers that are just perpetually stuck in leadership positions. And and then these kind of things happen with the ED medicine, and then and then the and then this. Did you see? Like, did you see her outfit? That was asking for yeah. a fondling, if you ask me. But <laughs> I mean, it's it's gross and it's disgusting, and I just, no one has any class anymore. You know, I follow this guy that teaches etiquette on you know Instagram or whatever, oh, okay. and it just it blows my mind the things that that my grandmother and my parents do the things that they still do and that we don't do anymore. And I think it's the same way with, with the people that we're seeing on the media doing these disgusting things. And it's like, have some class. I mean, my God. You're right though. It's like, okay, on one end of the spectrum, you've got, you know, Biden who's 80 and forgetting things and still running for president. You've got Mitch McConnell, who's like freezing up in some sort of like mini stroke like thing and they're having to move them to the side and so that's okay we don't want that but then you've got these like millennials who are like yeah i don't know don't not acting uh you know congressional i guess i don't know what the term would be but yeah well my grandmother would say that ain't right and she would be correct <laughs> That's true. Uh, all right. Another one that is maybe a little bit more, more nuanced. Uh, now we're going to the Senate. This is uh, uh, John Fetterman. Okay. He had a stroke, a massive stroke. Um, it did affect him in, in many ways. Then he, we found out that through the stroke and the recovery, he had like massive clinical depression. He went to, you know, the, the Walter Reed, he was there inpatient getting treatment came out. And one of the, the things that they said he had to do, uh, even though he's a Senator is it, unless he's wearing his hoodie and his shorts is like gym shorts, it will help, it will hurt his depression. He has to wear what he's comfortable with. And so they went through this process in the Senate. They changed the rule, the rules, the, like sort of the unofficial rules so that Fetterman could go and actually vote because he wasn't allowed to actually vote on the Senate floor. Then there was the whole mess up, you know, oh, actually this is now, we, we, we can't go that. Now we have to go back to him wearing a, a, a suit. Now he's back to where he can't wear the shorts. I don't know. I mean, 
do we, you know, should we be loosening the dress code on the Senate floor to accommodate, say, John Fetterman or anybody at this point? I'm probably not the best person to ask because I uh, am a big casual promoter. Like, I think that you should be comfortable, but come on. I mean, these people, <laughs> I don't know if a, you know, a suit and a tie is absolutely necessary all the time, but shorts and a hoodie. I, I think the policy should be, would you wear that to a fine dining establishment? Right. No. I mean, and if you do, you should be escorted out. So while I love being casual and comfortable, in fact, my mom always said I would never own a pants if it didn't have elastic in it. I, you know, there's a fine line when you get to that position of power. Do you really think it's okay to wear elastic waistbanded shorts and a hoodie? I don't, you know, I, I don't think so. That's what I've always been. I mean, like, there's got to be a middle ground, you know, like, okay, maybe not the suit, but can we, yeah, can we wear like something a little bit, a little bit nicer? I mean, even, even jeans, you know, a nice pair of jeans and like a, I don't know, a collared shirt or something, you know, something where you're, yeah. not, you know, I, I remember when, when we first met, um, uh, when you were doing the closing on our house, you had on these like, um, these like studded shoes, like these loafers. And I was like, this guy knows like how to, dress like i'm i'm way out of my league here this guy it's kind of kind of good thing going you i've never catch you in in the, the gym shorts and the hoodie i don't think at any point you would actually so i i usually do come to the office early in the morning and use my little leaf blower to make sure that everything looks a certain way and i have run into clients you know in my lululemon short shorts with my tight t-shirt on and i just act like a boss and right. make sure they're taken care of and then i bounce but there's a difference between that and, you know, working on the Senate floor, in my opinion. Uh, yeah. I don't know. And and I still do wear jeans and I'm wearing a T-shirt right now and I'm wearing studded shoes, but it's not gym shorts. And yeah, so I agree with you. There's got to be a common ground. Uh, we can't I never forget this. My, one of my first jobs, my first real jobs, I wore Ralph Lauren or I know they were there are Cole Haan flip flops to the office. And the manager pulled me aside and said, honey, don't wear your shower shoes to work. <laughs> and so I think he could take some advice from that lady. That's right. The shower shoes. You got the leaf blower, man. I, that's, anytime where you're, you're rocking the leaf blower, you're, you're in good shape. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. Unless they're doing that at the Senate. I don't want to see any shorts and hoodies. Okay. All right. Deal. All right. Last thing. Uh, now we go from, from a, an art, uh, argument about clothes to an argument about no clothes. Um, apparently there's this show called naked attraction. This was a very popular British dating show, uh, where, uh, the, you, you I, I never watched this show, but apparently the premise was people are naked. They're behind like this booth. And then slowly as this is going on, as you're learning about, okay, do I want to date this person? You're seeing more and more of their, of their body, uh, their naked body to, to the point where they're eventually fully naked. And this reality dating show is now one of the most popular shows on Max, formerly HBO Max, is now uh, here in America as the streaming service is one of the most popular things. Uh, what, what, do we are we are we supportive of this naked attraction? I mean, is this a good is this a good uh, healthy culture for us? I love the show. Do you? Okay, I didn't know you were. Yeah, okay. I think it's great, and I think you know it kind of took me back to one of the times I was in PE class. 
and when they talked about you know the anatomy and everything so uh because it's it is actually educational too they do little snippets to where like i, I on one of the episodes the lady actually didn't get rid of a heavier set gentleman and we were all shocked because there was a guy up there that had a greek god body and she said no i like them a little bit heavier and and so then it cuts away and it tells you you know actual statistics that they've done research on to why a female might prefer that it's uh, over someone like a slender build like myself so there were it's actually educational and it's not as cringy as i as you would think it is and i don't know it's i mean i i think it's great and okay uh it really kind of the body dysmorphia thing that a lot of people have i think it kind of addresses that and it gets people out of their element um, and to maybe something that's not their comfort zone. So I think it's a cool show. If you haven't watched it, I encourage you to do so. I'll check it out. So do we, do we say that she's interested in bears or is that not a, is that does not, not fit the description in that, in that particular mold? No, I think okay. in the words of Missy Elliott, he was big boned. Okay. All right. All right. Slightly different. And take, um, take, take that where you want to, since he was naked, I'll just leave it at that. Got it. Got it. Okay. Well, you, you saw, you saw it all. Um, JT, this has been temperature check. Thanks for doing it. You bet. All right. Thanks so much to JT. Thanks to Buck Sexton, Shao Atkinson. Thank you for listening. Remember fourth watch is available in a newsletter form at fourthwatch.media. Join me. Let's build a better media together. If you like the music in the show, as I do check out the artist who created it. That's super duper, super duper music on Instagram. Song is far from falling. Download it wherever you get your music, download, follow, like, rate, review, subscribe. I think we're still calling subscribe to this podcast on Apple, on Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts for free. Back soon. Stay safe. Talk to you then.